0: Welcome to the Jack and John podcast. I'm Jack and I'm John. I'm Justin, and we're on a mission to help you focus on Christ.
1: You may have noticed someone walked in on us this morning and we brought him into the room today. And yeah, this is Justin White. Justin is the teaching minister at the Mount Gilead Christian Church, and a good preacher he is. I have never heard a weak sermon from Justin. And uh, my wife just loves, loves your teaching. Well, we'll
2: stick around. It's bound to come. <laughs> well, you
1: know, I'm old, so I, I'll forget about it. <laughs> but uh, Justin has an interesting story. Uh, how long have you been in ministry, Justin?
2: Yeah, so I really, I grew up as a preacher kid hmm. uh, in, in Plainfield here on the west side of Indianapolis. And um, so in some ways, it's just always been a part of my life. You know how it is in a preacher's family. But... Um, Uh, Went to seminary at Cincinnati Christian University and then started as a 22-year-old naive kid out of Bible college. Thought I knew all the answers to church leadership and people and quickly found out I knew nothing. (laughs) Um, uh, Started in children's ministry, began preaching, and then in 2011 ended up at a church in Columbus, Indiana, First Christian Church in Columbus, Indiana, where I served as senior minister there. Um, Until 2016 okay. And then um, about a year ago uh, Well actually after 2016, 2017 Had a pause in vocational church ministry We'll talk about that in a second I think um, But then now I have the opportunity to serve here at Mount Gilead And I serve as the teaching minister and I'm thrilled to do so And you're married? Married, uh, sure. my yes, uh, my wife of uh, almost 21 years. Wow! And three kids: one who's uh, just finished up his first year at uh, Indiana University Kelly School of Business, doing great. And then I've got a, a, another son about to finish his seven, uh his uh, sophomore year in high school, and my daughter is about to finish up her seventh grade year. So if we were to
1: look at you, Justin, we would probably think this man has got his life all together. <laughs> uh, he's got a wonderful family. He's got his Bible college degrees. He's been in ministry, uh, been in a church home all of your life. Uh, but that detour had to do with uh, a little bit of mistake with um, prescription medication.
2: That's right. So um, we, we moved to Columbus, and it was a great season of life. We loved the town. If you've been to Columbus, you know it's a pretty interesting eclectic mm-hmm. town, um, neat people, uh, big little town with big city amenities. We, we were loving it. Problem was I started to develop some, uh, some headaches, oh. sort, sort of like migraine-style headaches. And I uh, went to my doctor. This was in 2014. And, um, he asked, he asked me to do a couple things. And one of those was to start taking, um, hydrocodone, uh, narcotic pain medicine. And, uh, Jack, I, I, had, I had taken Vicodin or hydrocodone for minor procedures right. earlier and had no problem stopping taking those pills when I was supposed to, but this time was different. This time when I took those first pills for the headache, I wanted the whole bottle and, and basically, that's what I did over the next few months. I, I just I would go through the bottle of pain pills. I would call my doctor and say, hey, I need a refill. He would prescribe me another uh, or he, he'd call in a refill. And that pattern would continue and even up, up, upping the dosage along the way.
1: If I could interject. Yeah, sure. Because I just thought of some you saying that. Uh, I have found you to be one of the most genuine Christian men
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, and a wonderful minister of the gospel and of a church. Mm-hmm. and uh, But you're so open mm-hmm. uh, with your story. Mm-hmm. And uh, does that scare you? Uh, I, I would imagine that there are people that uh, hopefully would be listening who maybe have a little bit of a problem yes. with some kind of prescription medication and are hiding it hiding it from everybody and anybody because they don't want people to know um, how bad their lives really are. Oh, yeah. And uh, so just to kind of make that clear with you, uh, a man who is so blessed by God and yet had a detour, Mm -hmm. as you called it, uh, because of that desire, because of the mistakes and because of the things Mm -hmm. that kind of happened around that. Uh, So what would you say to people about your openness in talking about this? And what would you like to accomplish?
2: Sure. First thing I would say, Jack, and it's a great observation you're making, is I was not open about this for a long time. So uh, certainly during my active addiction, it was a full-time job keeping it a secret. Mm. I did everything I could because I didn't want anybody to think I had a problem Nobody in my family had a problem with alcohol or drugs. This was new territory. So it was a full time job chasing the drug and another full time job just trying to keep it a secret. Right. Uh-huh. And then, even, even, and I'll, I'll jump sort of fast forward to the story. You know, there, I'm not addicted today. I did end up getting clean, getting help. But even in the early days of recovery, I still wanted to keep it a secret. I would drive. 20 or 30 minutes away from my home in order to go to a 12 step meeting because I didn't want anybody to think I had a problem. Right. I was so afraid of being known. And the, the main reason I was afraid is that I'm a people pleaser by nature. And um, I think that's a curse on a lot of creatures' mm-hmm. kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I thought if people knew the real me, I would find rejection. People would reject me. Oh, you've got problems. You're a drug addict. You, you drink too much alcohol. You get drunk. Oh man, you know we don't we don't want that. We, we don't want them. You've got problems, right? What I have found is that it's actually the opposite that happens mm-hmm. when we are more vulnerable, more authentic. If if we say to one another, "Look, I've got this problem, and I need some help," man. People accept you. And there's a closeness that happens.
1: And it's not even just that kind of addiction. I know for me, uh, in my younger days, when my kids were younger, I had a little trouble Mm -hmm. with the children. And I was embarrassed for the church people to know that there was a little bit of a problem in my home. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the scripture that says that, you know, we should have our house in order yeah, or whatever, but we, we get these uh, guilty feelings from the scriptures. Yes. And then we become a hypocrite. We hide the true nature Ooh. of who we are. We have a false face right. on. So if this, can, this can actually move out into an, any number
2: of situ- situations. It's interesting that you bring that up. I remember... <clears throat> When I went to rehab, I was sitting in a circle with about 20 other guys, and it was a processing group, right? We had had come out of listening to a lesson on addiction, so we we came back and we sat around the circle and kind of just processed together what we had heard. The very first time I attended that meeting at rehab, and I heard guys going around the circle, each, each one of them saying something like, hi, my name is Jack, I'm an addict, Hi, my name is John. I'm an alcoholic. And I just sat there froze. Like, how can you be so honest about the fact that you are an alcoholic? I'd grown up in church my whole life, and I had never. Never been honest? I had never been honest myself, and I had never been in a group that was so honest about their brokenness and about what they were struggling with. And I remember... I went and did some one-on-one counseling, even when I got back from rehab, you know, for a few months, still trying to recover and get a foundation for the next chapter of my life. And I remember my counselor at the time, he was a Christian guy. He said, Justin, can you imagine if the church got that? Mm. What if the church could come to a place of understanding in our small groups, in our life groups? that we can be totally transparent about whatever it is that we struggle with whether it's addiction or pornography or gambling or anger or gossip or overeating wh- whatever it is what if what if we could create a culture mm. where that was the norm and i'll just be honest with you that has been one of my passions mm. ever since coming to that realization myself like i want to bring that into the church and help a church change the culture because i think a lot of our cultures stru- or a lot of our churches struggle In that culture of trying to put on the church face and say, hi, I'm fine.
1: Not only that, but I think (laughs) it even goes beyond that to, I'm fine, Mm -hmm. and you're not, and then becoming critical of you, even though I may have the same
2: problem.
0: And that's classic deflection. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Wow. I want to interject just one thing, Justin, because part of the reason why we want to do this whole podcast and your podcast in particular, is um, it's too easy for us, just as humans, um, regardless of whether you're Christian or otherwise, to focus on the things that go wrong or focus on the things that, that you know, we wish we'd done this different or whatever, yeah. or just to focus on the sin. And our objective is to help people focus on Christ, because what did Jesus do? Did he focus on sin? Mm. No. No. Jesus, Jesus didn't focus on sin. He didn't even focus really on the message. He focused on the person. Yes, I mean, think about when he met with the woman at the well yeah, in classic. Samaria. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: classic. You know, the he didn't caught in adultery. The, you know, yeah, yes. uh, he didn't
0: walk up and say, "Hey, sinner, <laughs> you know, I'm the way, the truth, and life. What do you think?" No, he sat down and he he talked to her. Yes, he saw. Her, and I think that's what you're getting at is you were afraid that people were going to see the real you, yes. and not not like you. That's Rejected. exactly right. Okay, but the my point is that's who Jesus sees. Yeah, that's who Jesus loves because you ever, we're all transparent. With him. Yes. It's like, okay, you've got this little bottle that looks like a perfume bottle. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you know that what's inside really stinks mm-hmm. and you don't want that lid to come off That's because right. you don't want anybody to smell it. And then guess what? That bottle gets broken.
2: Mm. Now everybody smells it. Yeah. yeah for yeah. me, that was, you know, part of the story is that I, I, Got into some legal trouble because of some decisions I made while I was using. I ended up using for about a year and a half uh, in active addiction um, and got clean. Went to rehab, got clean, came home, and got in some, some legal trouble. Um, ended up being arrested. Um, ended up having to serve some time, which maybe we'll talk about here in a little bit. But everything ended up on the front page of the newspaper for multiple days you talk about the jar of stinky perfume breaking boom it happened yet what's interesting john that in and of itself even though it was extremely painful was the key to getting healthy because when everybody just sees it and it's in black and white on the newspaper or in color no or, or in color yes oh there's nowhere God. to hide and right. finally it was like, okay, well, I guess the secret's out was the word pastor in any oh headlines? well the, one of the headlines it, it was like I know they'd eat that up from from the pulpit to prison or something you know I'd always been big on alliteration in my outlines as a preacher that was a that was a game changer. no it, it was yeah. something like that Of course and and it was a massive story. we were in a smaller town made the news for for weeks. Um but there was a blessing even in that because at least yeah. now the secret's out, there was freedom. Okay. That actually came from that, oh, I'm finally known and if people are okay with that, great. If they're not okay with it, okay, you just have to accept it
0: and then move on. Yeah. And thank God Jesus is is okay with it. Right. You know, he he knew the stink before the stink got out. He knew. Yeah. yeah,
1: and I think if we think yeah. about it, probably all of our stories have to do with God intervening in our lives. Amen. Yeah. God being involved in our lives, and when we are in trouble, God doesn't leave us or forsake us. think mm-hmm. God is still there, and I think that that is a thread that runs through your story, one hundred from beginning to end. That you could see a God use people or angels or something that was taking place in your life to get you to the place where you are now.
0: I don't. I don't think we have to ask whether you felt. Closer to God before
2: or after? It's not just that I feel closer now; it's that I feel like I have even a different understanding of God now. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the most general way to say it is, grace has just gotten bigger. Ugh. Grace has gotten bigger, I, guys. I I was there were so many parts of my life that I look back on and I'm through my process of pain. God has pruned me and refined me still got a long way to go. But one of those areas is that, man, I used to be really judgmental. Mm -hmm. And if I heard like when I was a pastor and somebody would come in from my congregation that I knew was having marriage problems or was drinking too much or had a gambling issue They'd come into my office, and I would I would kind of have this mindset going into it, like sort of like the Pharisee who prayed that prayer, God, I'm so glad I'm not like him. Yeah. And you know it's crazy. Now it's like it's, I feel the opposite. I kind of want to be like that guy, you know, mm. not not in my sinfulness, not in my rebellion, but there is something happens when we become so honest about our brokenness. And about our fallenness that that turns our hearts to God. Like he's the only answer. He's the only place we have to look. And I've just experienced grace not only from him, but even from other people in the church, the church where I serve now. I mean, they know everything about what happened. And yet they, they've embraced me. They've embraced the story. They've embraced my family. And then they want to use all of this to bless other people oh, wow. and to help other people. And I'm, I'm so I'm so humbled by that. You know? It's interesting that the Bible
1: calls God a God of comfort. Amen. And a certainly God of grace. But uh, I didn't know him too much as a God of comfort because I didn't need any comfort. But when yes. suddenly I needed comforted, uh, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and learn of me, yeah. for I am gentle and humble of heart. To find that in Jesus Uh, is um, life-changing.
2: The story of God gets its roots in Genesis, right? And really, what we see the rest of Scripture, and even up till today, is almost a repeat of everything you see in Genesis.
1: Yeah. Right? True.
2: Yeah. And what happens in the last chapter of Genesis? It's Joseph in this massive redemption moment with his brothers. Right. And that, that verse, verse 20 of chapter 50, you know, what, what you intended or what they intended for for harm or for evil, God intended for good. And that, that right there for me is the, is the founding principle for what, whatever pain anyone is going through, what, 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 what was intended for evil, God can use for good. And isn't that the story of the cross? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, persecution of of the early church. What happened when the church was persecuted? The gospel spread, right? And I think that same principle just keeps repeating itself over and over in the lives of people everywhere today. What what someone may have intended for harm,
0: God God is using for good. I think it's it's important for people to have a, a depth of understanding of that because. Sometimes we let that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. We let that become just a trite phrase. Well, This will all work out. Right. And that's not what it means. No. No, it's so much deeper than that because God's working in the in the darkest places in our lives. And that light is still there. The light is still there, even in the
2: deepest darkness. That's right. The light is still there. Yeah, because it's easy for like somebody like me to say, Oh, God was there, He was with me, He saved my life. I overdosed and I'm 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 alive. But what about to the family that lost yeah. their son to an overdose? Right. Right? What about the marriage that didn't get restored? what about those moments? That's a harder question. It is. And yet God is still in that. Yes. And he can even use that. Even even something that isn't yet restored, he can still and is still using those moments for his glory. I don't know I don't always understand that by the way. Mm-hmm. I don't even I don't understand how he does it, but it happens.
0: All things will be made new. Amen. Even the broken things, the destroyed things, the things that we've lost, the things that we can't get back. God restores and makes all things new. Amen.
1: Well, Justin, your your story t- takes a turn. It becomes really very interesting. Mm-hmm. And uh, I might say I was a child of the 70s. I know I'm very, very old, so a child of the 70s. The child and, in the uh, 70s yeah, now. In my <laughs> 70s now. But... Um, <laughs> In those days, it became really popular uh, for people to have these dramatic testimonies. <laughs> and uh, they would go around, travel around. I was such and, a oh, terrible yeah, sinner. <laughs> uh, Get you your know, Kleenex. The Lord oh, pulled me out of my wretched <laughs> <rigid laughs> state. <laughs> but you've you, you heard of that. Um, but anyway, they would, they would have a large audience. People would come and some of the kids in the youth group in the 70s would say, man, I wish I'd done something cool like that, mm-hmm. like gotten addicted to drugs. So I could have a cool testimony or something like that. So what is your move there? What happened to kind of move that to where your story takes a turn to a place that most people don't ever go to? Yeah. And
2: this is to your point, Jack, this is sort of what makes the story unique right? Uh, and, and stand out. So I'll just, I'll just kind of do a summary flyover. Okay. So, I I was in active addiction for about 18 months from January of 2014 through July of 2015. July of 2015, I overdose on heroin and fentanyl. Um, Spend uh, the month of of August of 2015 at a place called Hazelden Betty Ford. It's a rehab uh, treatment center uh, northeast of Minneapolis. Spent the month of August there. Came back. And the elders at my church, I mean, incredibly gracious. Like they knew why I was at, at in Minneapolis, they they knew I had a problem, and they they still said we support you, we still believe in you. You have a place here.
1: So you can give me a sentence, because I, I, you know when you said something, I have to stop. Give me a sentence. How did heroin get involved in this? Sure. Like
2: absolutely. So so you don't have I to mean, go long on it. Just. It's a great question, and this is part of what I didn't know at the time, and I think it's still, still sort of a mystery out there. You know, so, so I was on the hydrocodone, which is an opioid. Here's our doctor, so yeah, correct me if I'm you. wrong. It's, <laughs> it, there's, it, it is, it's in a class of drugs called opiates or opioids, right? And it got to a point where my, my prescription was not cutting it for me. Wow. And I was starting to go in withdrawals. I was starting to get sick. You know, with any drug, you need more and more of it to get the same effect. And so, I had met someone in Columbus that um, told me that he had access to somebody else's pain pills, and that I could start purchasing those pills if I wanted to. And so, after six months of my own prescription, I spent the next six months using my own prescription and then purchasing pain pills off the street. Okay, and I quickly worked up my my Quickly worked my way up what's called an opioid ladder, right? So, hydrocodone, Percocet, oxycodone, morphine, opiate. If, if it was an opioid, I had to have it. I just started chasing it down, right? That became a, a full time job. After a year of this, I mean, I'm hooked, and my life is is not in a good place in in any in any regard. There came a point when my dealer said, look, I don't have any more pills and I'm freaking out because at this point, I just need opioids not to feel high, but just to feel normal, not to be sick, right?
1: Mm.
2: And I don't want to be sick. I don't want to start withdrawing. And so he said, man, don't freak out. I got something else for you to try. Have you ever tried heroin? And of course, at that point, I hadn't. But I also knew that heroin was in the same class of drugs as my pain pills, It's an, it's an opioid, right? Or has that same effect. And so I started snorting lines of heroin and then fentanyl and really any combination of opioid drugs that I could get my hands on.
1: Thank you. It's a a
2: good point because
0: if your doctor had said to you right up front (laughs) or, or a friend or whatever, Hey, I've got some heroin. You would have, that would have been a complete affront. Yeah. Yeah, Forget it. No way. Are you kidding? Yeah. Crazy. Right. Um, but you had gotten to the point where the the drug owned you. That's exactly right. Yeah. You weren't purchasing the drugs. The drug was buying you. Amen. Yeah. Um, I want to interject something for patients here because it's easy for people to say, well, I don't see how anybody gets addicted to that stuff. And I got to tell you, it's what you said about what the hydrocodone did for you when you started taking it for the headaches. Right. Okay. Because, Everybody's different. Okay. You you took it and got something. Okay. I don't feel like I have to worry about an addiction with hydrocodone Mm -hmm. because I've had it twice for two different surgeries. Mm -hmm. I did not like the way it made me feel. I got irritable. I couldn't sleep. I hated the way that stuff felt and felt like Advil actually would have worked better, but I couldn't take it because it, it would thin the blood after the surgery. Okay. Okay. So, hydrocodone wasn't a worry for me. I have a good friend. He says, Man, I don't ever want to take hydrocodone. I said, Why is that? He said, Oh, it makes me feel real good. Mm-hmm. Now, see, there's the difference because one person, can be drawn to that stuff, and it gets its hooks in, and it's got you. The other person
2: is pushed away from it. That's why my mom, when the, all of this happened and started coming out, the truth started coming out, she just couldn't understand it because it was exactly what you right. just described. She was like, I take it. And I feel sick. Exactly. I hate it. And one of the things I've had to realize is, and maybe this could be another podcast. I don't know. Yeah. There's a reason why. It made me feel good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna leave it there because that has taken me years to figure out yeah. the why. I think I have a better idea now today, but there's a reason why when I took that and I was sort of numb and happy. You know the question is why did it take a chemical to make me happy? Mm-hmm. Why did it take a chemical to for me to just feel normal and good with myself, well, there's a reason why, but it was under the surface, and it took a long time to figure that out. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, moving along. Yeah, so I, I overdose, go to rehab, come back, start start um, preaching again. My problem, and and this would be to anybody I would I want to you know share who's, who might be struggling with whatever they're going through. I did not at that point when I came back from rehab. I didn't want to think of myself as a lifelong person in recovery. That's what they tell you—you you have to do in order to survive. But most of us, including me, when I got out of re- rehab, I thought, "Oh, I got this. I'm check- well. I'm well. I'm delivered. I can sort of check this off the off the off the list and move on with my life." Uh, I couldn't have made a worse mistake. Hmm. Um, I was I wasn't working a program. I didn't use narcotics anymore. But I wasn't working a program. I I didn't get a sponsor. I wasn't going to 12-step meetings. I really wasn't even honest with my congregation about why I was away. If somebody would come to my office and say, hey, what was going on? You know, tell me about what happened. I would tell them. And so word sort of got out, but I never really came out to my congregation and say, look, I'm an addict and I developed this problem and I'm sorry, Um, I'm working through it. Thanks for your support. If I would have said that, I really think the church would have gotten behind me and been okay with it and helped me because really statistics show that about two out of every three American families are facing some sort of addiction in their home. So this is not a foreign concept and there's more and more awareness, but I wasn't ready to come clean. I wasn't ready to be honest about what had happened, Mm -hmm. right? So I kind of led this sort of fake recovery life
1: mm.
2: for about a year, and then the twist happens. I go home from church. This is December of 2016. I go home from church on a, it was the Sunday morning before Christmas, and I walk in with my son, and we quickly realize there's a lot of stuff missing from our home, and so we call nine one one. Um, We got our insurance agent involved. Somebody had robbed our house. It was clear. We got that process going. I'm going to speed up a little bit, just kind of give an overview of the story. And so about a week later, I get a call from the police and they say, we think we found your stuff, but we need you to come down to the station to identify it. So I go down to the station. I was by myself. And sure enough, about two-thirds of our stuff is there at the station. And I thank the officers. um, This is great. What are the next steps? And said, well, actually, we have a few questions for you. So they led me to this uh, small interview room, and they start reading me my Miranda rights. And I thought that was kind of strange, but I'd never been in trouble before, so I just kind of go with it. And the long and the short of it is um, they found my stuff with one of the one of the young men that I had purchased those pain pills from years earlier. His story is that I had recruited him to stage a burglary. What? So that I could claim insurance money, pay off the drug debt. Um now. Sounds believable. It it does. <laughs> I mean for for some it it, it may. Um, I can tell you in all honesty and integrity, I did a lot of stupid things, but not that. that. And in my attempt to convince the police of that, I shared with them that, no, I hadn't done that. I hadn't staged burglary, um, but I had purchased pain pills from this young man. And the police did the math at that point and realized that when I had purchased those pain pills, he was underage. He was a minor. And that part is true. And when we get to this part of the story, this is, to be honest with you, this is the most painful part of the story for me because I've always loved kids. I started in children's ministry. I value young people. Um, And yet in my addiction and in my um, brokenness, I made a really, a a really bad series of choices uh, negatively impacting and influencing that young man. But, But not with intent. Not with intent. Um, But and and certainly if I was was in my right mind, I don't believe I really don't believe I would have made that same decision. But, you know, that's one of the things that happens when we're under the influence. You
1: weren't thinking of hurting him.
2: No, but I was being selfish.
1: You're thinking of yourself.
2: I was thinking of myself and um, trying to think, how do I how am I going to get on the next 4 hours of my life i need another shot of narcotic you know so i ended up purchasing those pills and so they did the math long story short that then there became this long investigation months long investigation 3 3 4 months later the cops show up at my house and they put me in handcuffs and take me to county jail um i was i, I was arrested and charged with uh, two felonies insurance fraud and contributing to the delinquency of a minor for purchasing those pain pills from him years earlier. Now, as the investigation went on, I bailed out of jail. I spent one night there, bailed out, uh, started working with a lawyer. Um, and then, as the as as our lawyers and the prosecutors started working it all out, they dropped the insurance fraud charge. But they did. But I did end up pleading, pleading guilty to that contributing charge. Um, I just. You know, some people may have told me, no, you got to fight that, you know, you should work with your lawyer and, and they didn't have any evidence, da, da, da. But guys, I just felt at least ethically at the time, well, I did do it. And number two, I confessed to it when the police were asking me about it. So I just, in working with my lawyer, we just felt it was best if I go ahead and plead guilty um, to, to that count is actually two counts. Six months later, now we're at October of uh, 2017, and it's time for the sentencing hearing. I had had, uh, pleaded guilty, but it was an open plea, which meant I had to wait until the judge sentenced me. It wasn't some part of the plea deal with the prosecutor. And so we were all nervous, getting ready for that sentencing hearing. The, The morning of, I asked my lawyer again, hey, what am I facing? And he continued to tell me, look, this crime happened years earlier you went to rehab. You got clean. You're not a threat to society today. This is your first offense. Uh, you're probably looking at a year or two of probation. Uh, and I thought to myself, "Well, I can live with that." You know. Well, we get to the sentencing hearing, and it was it was a long sentencing hearing. And at the end of it, the judge sentenced me to seven years, three years in the department Whoa. of three years in the Department of Corrections. Did the judge have an agenda? <laughs> well, I don't know. I can't can't tell you. Um, I kind of look at this sort of like back in Genesis 50, you know, if there was any kind of uh, ill intent. And I I don't know if there was or not. I think maybe the judge is trying to do the right thing. Um,
0: uh, Maybe the judge thought a pastor deserved a heavier
2: sentence. I think that's part of it. You you do often see people in position of influence. Getting harder sentences. And I just have to accept that. The bottom line is, and you, you, you've been in ministry, Jack, you know, there's a lot of perks and a lot of blessings.
1: Much is required, though. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Boom. And if you if you take advantage of that, there's going to be repercussions. Right. And I think that was part of it. I've learned to just accept that and, and move on. Um, and maybe the
0: judge didn't want to be on the front page of the newspaper. <laughs> you know, judge, lets
2: us P- pastor walk, you know, or <laughs> yeah, you never know. Um I'll be honest with you guys. There was for a long time and I'll get into what happened next in just a second. But for a long time, I was in classic blame mode. Mm, sure. I blame the judge. I blame the prosecutor. um, I blame the doctor that prescribed the the pills that I was asking for and I was lying to him about. I was blaming even him. I was in classic blame mode until I realized, wait a minute, I'm the one behind bars. They're all outside the fence. They're with their families. I'm the one doing time. Maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the common denominator, and I was. Maybe it's me. Maybe it's me. <laughs> so, I, and, and honestly, it took me like half of my prison sentence before I got to that point. Oh, wow! But once I got there, and this is the part of the story I always like to get get to, yeah. Because the bottom line is, yeah, I was I was uh, walked out of that that courtroom in handcuffs with the sheriff, spent a few nights in county. And then uh, was placed in the state prison system. I ended up serving um, 15 months in but, total. And you,
0: you had said that your lawyer asked, can he have a couple of days to get things in order because we weren't expecting this? And the judge says, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. By the way,
1: there's a, uh, do you all remember the Pogo comic, comic strip? Pogo? Yeah. I don't think
0: so. None of our audience does. Nobody, uh, <laughs> I
1: well, I, this, 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 you will remember this. You'll okay. probably use it. Okay. All right. right. Great. Okay. Pogo uh, one time said, oh, we have found the enemy and he is us. Yeah, he is <laughs> us. Yeah. That, that was from an old context. Yes. Uh, and that's true, I think, in a sense.
2: 100%. <laughs> yeah. Jack, it, it's, it's us. You have to look inward. Now, were there factors outside of my control? That led me into addiction and into incarceration, 100%. But was I the primary reason? 100%. Yes, it was me. And when I got there, and again, this was like halfway through the prison sentence that I finally got there. Once I got there, that's when the freedom really began. I got to tell you guys, I have never felt more free than when I was behind bars. Now, it took some time to get there. But once I got to this point where I realized, number one, I've got a problem. In fact, I've got multiple problems that need to be addressed. And coupled that with what you just said a minute ago, John, which I think is so significant, that even despite the problems and my sins and my addictions, that God loves me, for me, and he was clearly... I I could spend all day telling you how he was providing for me, even in prison with different people and different situations that happened along the way. Even, Even with all the junk of my life, he's still with me. He still clearly loves me and is providing for me. When I got there, that's when freedom really set in. And ever since that point... It's been a great journey of of seeing how God is using this for good.
1: Something just amazing uh, came to my mind. Uh, So many people blame God. Mm -hmm. You said Mm -hmm. you blame the judge. You blame this. Did you ever blame God? And uh, the reason I think that is so dangerous, God gives us free will, and we use our free will to make choices and decisions and then turn around and blame God for the choice and decision we made sometimes. Or get into a situation where a suffering or a trial or a difficulty comes. And rather than, you know, for use God uh, as a strength and help to bear us up, we blame God
2: for being me, bad. For me, it didn't get all the way to blame. Okay, It was more of a question. Okay. God, why? Why? Like, I found out later, and I shared with you before, I found out that I'm the only one in the whole country that has ever been to prison, for that charge. Wow. Um, and so, of course, at, at, at some point, the question was, why? You know, why me, Lord? But here, here's the thing. In recovery, and if, if you've been to an AA meeting, you may have even heard this reading. One of the pillars of sustained, successful recovery is the concept of acceptance.
1: Right.
2: I have to accept that there are things outside of my control that are gonna happen, and I have to be okay with that. I'm not God, I am not the center of the universe, even though sometimes I think I am. <laughs> I'm really not. And I have to just be okay when something happens that I don't think should have happened. I don't think I should have gotten gone to prison, you know? But now I can say I'm glad I did because of the lessons I learned and what it was preparing me for in the second half of my life, I turned 40. Behind bars. Wow. That was a hard day, in some ways, but in other ways, it was a good it was a good day because I realized, you know what? God has given me a chance to have sort of a timeout. When your kids were little and they did something wrong, you, they go to timeout, right? I got a I got a grown up timeout, right? But you don't have your Atari machine and <laughs> your big screen, but I had a lot of ramen noodles, man. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And honestly, guys, I have to say this, too, as part of the story, we all have ideas about what prison is like and about the bad dudes that you meet in prison. And, yeah, there are a lot of bad dudes there. But, man, I made some of the best friends of my life in prison. There are a lot of guys in a similar situation that got caught up in something bigger. It got out of control, bigger than what they had thought, and they ended up. Doing something. I I found a lot of the guys in there, the majority of the guys in there, were in there because of a drug related offense, selling, manufacturing, um, a drug related offense, or because of something they did when they were under the influence Mm -hmm. of drugs or alcohol. So the jails and prisons today are packed with people who have an addiction issue or who have mental health issues issue. Not so much maybe the criminal mindset that we think of, although that's true too. There are some just lifelong criminals who just really like doing bad things to people, but you can even argue that's a mental illness too. That's a <laughs> mental health issue too. My point is my whole perception about who's in prison and, and why did they get there, that really changed. And thankfully, they they helped shape me and they taught me a lot just about life and about God and about how to handle adversity. I'm so thankful for that. When I think about
0: what you said in that little bit about using heroin, Mm -hmm. that first time that you got heroin, Mm -hmm. um, when you're at that point and you're on the brink of withdrawal and you need that drug, you're vulnerable to about anything. I mean, the guy that's giving you the heroin, he could have been the conduit to... Any different array of
2: crimes. That's an excellent observation, John, and you're exactly right. I would have done anything at that point for more drugs. In some ways, I'm spared. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I mean. Yeah, it didn't yeah. get any worse. It didn't
1: get to where it took
0: the sustenance of your well, family.
2: That's right. Or I didn't kill somebody.
1: Right.
2: Or or drive drunk and kill myself. You know. The or, most
0: beautiful thing I see in this whole story. <laughs> Is your family is intact. Mm-hmm. You have a wife who stayed with you right. when you weren't there. And kids that are still your kids. You know, you're not looking at a new family that started because your wife found a new man that, that was right. not an addict. Right. And God's you know?
1: still using you in and, full-time and, ministry. Right. In the church. But
0: think about if you still we're burying this secret. That's right. If that instead of it blowing up in your face, if it had continued to grow, and and I, I told Justin a story earlier about I can't give a lot of details because of HIPAA. You don't. You can't share things that are going to give it away. But I had a patient who it was in a similar situation, and it all blew up. It all blew up because they kept putting a heavier lid on the secret until finally it's like a pressure cooker. And that thing just blew. And then nobody was spared. Mm -hmm. You got a family that's sacrificed. You got lives that are sacrificed because that addiction just utterly exploded. And it didn't just hurt the addict. It, It slaughtered everyone. The
2: community. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that, to me,
2: is the beautiful thing about how God was truly with you in your darkest moments. One hundred percent. It's a great. It's a great point, John. Not only did I have a wife who stayed faithful and kids who were still accepting of what was going on and were okay to come visit me in prison, which you know in some ways was traumatic in and of itself. Oh, yeah. um, But it's also the story of the church, God's people rallying around a family in need. I cannot tell you how many people brought meals, um, sent money to my wife and kids while I was behind bars and couldn't work, gift card, gas cards, um, even help with housing. Um, That's another chapter, multiple chapters of this story of how the, the, the body of Christ came and rallied around. Um, a, a traumatic, difficult situation and loved a family through a nightmare. Wow. Yeah. I've
0: got to say, you know, if, if you're listening and you're struggling with this from any side of it, I mean, whether you're the addict, whether you're dealing with an addict, have lived with an addict, you've, you've suffered some piece of this because of addiction and it doesn't have to be drugs doesn't have to be alcohol. It doesn't have to be sex. I mean, I don't care what it is. There are things in this world, things that our flesh is drawn to, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. I don't care what it is. There's something that is infesting your life. And you've got to understand, Jesus is there in the middle of that with you. You're caught in a fire. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But you don't have to burn up in it. He is right there in the middle of the fire taking the heat for you. Yeah. You don't have to get burned up. Your life doesn't have to get destroyed because his life was destroyed for you. Amen.
1: There's Jeez. another offshoot too. The, the other offshoot is that suicide is a tremendous problem in our, in our land, our country today and there are many people that get involved and connected in these kinds of things whatever they may be to the place that they feel like there's just no hope there's no help
0: there's no way there's out there's nowhere
1: to go there's nowhere at, out, no way out better to just end it you know than than to face what they think they face and there's so many people that need a place like you had, mm-hmm. a, a people like you had, a community like you mm-hmm. had uh, to come alongside you and do that. Praise the Lord for that. Just God has a plan for your life. I think.
0: Thank you, brother. Amen. Yeah, that's the other piece of it. I mean, if you're not in it, you can get in it by being that person yeah. who comes alongside. Whether it's a gift card. You know, for you, you, everybody knows somebody who's suffering, a family that's, you know, missing dad for a while, and it might be because somebody's in the hospital or somebody's disabled from an injury. Um, I just feel a conviction to be the church. Amen. You know, uh, the church isn't a building. We love Mount Gilead. That's they're great to us because they give us this space. They've got great pastors like Justin here that that we going to work with us, but it's not a building. It's the people. I mean, the word actually means a gathering or a coming together, and that's that's what we've got to be. You got to come together, and because you didn't obviously get through this thing alone. Oh, your, no! Your picture would have looked very different if you'd have come out, and your wife was with another man, That's right? And, or your kids had wanted nothing to do with their convict dad. I, I I I shudder to think about it, and and but Jesus has truly blessed you through all these other people because they saw the same value in you that He saw in you. They didn't see your sin. This are you. Mm-hmm. So I how many times God should for we that. forgive
1: Justin? Seven? <laughs> yeah. Well, oh,
0: seven times <laughs> <Yeah>. a bunch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I keep thinking of the phrase there, but for the grace of God. Amen. Go we have to understand Amen. that whatever circumstance or situation we may see someone in, we should never judge it because though the grace because of the grace of God is in our lives. We haven't gotten to that place yet.
0: The other thing is, never know. when you're looking at that person, instead of being like the Pharisee
1: right. and saying, sure there
0: but for the grace of God, right. go I. How about there because of the grace of God, go I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That guy needs Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: There was a missionary who was um, over in uh, India And uh, they were taking care of some lepers. Leprosy is still actually a disease there. And a group of people from America were visiting and uh, watching this nurse unwrap the hand of a oozing, sore-ridden arm that was in the process of decaying and falling off. And the person looked at it with disgust and said, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. And the nurse looked up and said, neither would I. You know, you don't do it right. for the million dollars. You do it because of what you were talking about, mm. the love of Christ. Right. And that's what, Justin, I think that's what your life is a little bit about, isn't it? Now to provide a place for addicts, uh, an opportunity.
2: I think when you survive some form of trauma... You want to use whatever you've learned in the process, the life that you've received through the process. You want to extend that life and that grace and that hope to someone else. You know, you see a lot like for those that maybe have suffered with uh, breast cancer and all the walks and the fundraisers, the pink ribbons, you know, um, there's so many people that want to get behind that. The same is true. In the recovery community, the recovery community is full of people who are there, who get it, who want to provide hope. Because to your point, it's it's really true. So many of us, we we, we arrive at a place of absolute despair and we think, I can't get better. So I'm not going to get better. You know, so we try to we try to help people understand, yeah, you can get better. Your, your mind's playing tricks on you because you're under the influence of chemicals. Right. And just, the devil wants to. The- Main killer. Oh, he uses it for yeah. sure. 100%. So, yeah, one of the things we do here at Mount Gilead Church, we've got a, we've started a, a recovery meeting. Good. It's a faith based 12 step group. We uphold the scriptures, but we also value uh, the 12 steps in the process that it is. Uh, we meet every Monday night at seven o'clock, men and women and loved ones that's what makes our group a little bit different so it's an open group because loved ones have their own journey of recovery that they have to go to go through as well so we have about uh, anywhere between 40 and 60 people on a monday night here and it's it's growing we're opening up a uh, sober living house through the ministry of Mount Gilead Church. Excellent. Hopefully, later this year, we're working on plans, um, even today, working uh, working on some uh, infrastructure plans for that as well. So, yeah, I, I'm so thankful. God has opened so many doors. And, you know, I love recovery ministry because I feel like I get to sit on the front row of watching God change a person's life. And you you, you, you both know how exciting that is when you how get to you see life change. Oh, Yeah it is common for us to um, start our meeting with a baptism. Wow. You know, we've had several baptisms along the way and um, you know, people are are coming to know Christ through this ministry, uh, maybe for the first time, but many of them coming to know Christ in a new way, in a richer way than before. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's great too. When I was in uh, church
1: ministry in the (laughs) eighties, I was in my thirties. Uh, I got very, very involved in what was called First Chance, or yeah, First Chance in uh, Dot City, mm-hmm. Kansas, and I started doing Fifth Steps with some of the, some of the, yep. uh, the, the people there.
2: Reviewing their fourth step.
1: Reviewing their fourth step, yes. which is them basically me sitting there in my little office, thirty-year-old, yes. having a pretty. Covered life. raw, right? yeah. yeah. And I'm hearing things. Oh, you that, having a cover. No, I'm me and listening yeah, to, okay. to someone <laughs> tell me all of yes. the things. And I was, would sit there and smile thinking, oh, my word. <laughs> you know, but, but just simply wind up saying, praise the Lord for your openness and for your, uh, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it's just an amazing yeah. thing. But we, as the body of Christ, have got to stop being shocked at sin right. Right. and shocked at the people who do it that's right, and uh, starts having compassion. And that's one of the things I think that stands about Jesus when he saw the leper, saw the people without food or with no teacher, no shepherd, him having compassion. Mm-hmm. Whether it was touching the leopard, leper, feeding uh, the people that were hungry, mm-hmm. or just simply ministering love. Into someone's life, he did it every time. Every time, and that's what we
0: should do. Yeah, Justin, thank you so much. Thank you,
2: thank you, John.
0: Thank you, Jack. Uh, this has been great. Um, I, you know, we could go on, but I mean, we've tapped you guys. Uh, appreciate your patience and your listening. And you know, I got to challenge you. If you've been challenged and motivated by the words that Justin has shared, you need to share this with somebody else and share it with your friends
1: if you've been blessed by Justin yeah you, we know where to find him he's right here helping people at Mount Gilead church in Morza yeah. so
0: well thanks for listening we'll see you next time
1: yeah.